Hello and welcome to Value Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and today I'm joined by Ethan Garfolo to discuss techniques from software engineering and software development that you can use to become a better data scientist. Ethan is a software developer and software architect specializing in microservice-based projects and using lean and DevOps principles to make software development teams more effective. He is the author of Practical Microservices, Build Event-Driven Architectures with Event Sourcing and CQRS, and runs the Utah Microservices Meetup Group. Ethan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Genevieve. Data science sits at the intersection of computer science and statistics. So it comes as no surprise that many of the best data scientists have a computer science or software development background. And those that don't, well, there's a lot they can learn from software developers. I'm a better data scientist today because of what I've learned from my software developer friends and co-workers, which is why I was very keen to get a software developer onto this show to discuss this topic in more detail. And I'm very grateful to you, Ethan, for agreeing to do this with me. You bet. From reading your LinkedIn profile, I can see you've worked in a very diverse range of roles within the software industry over the course of your career. Some of the job titles you've got listed include software developer, software engineer, software architect, data architect, and software development engineer. And I think I saw a profile you'd written of yourself online where you described yourself as a professional programmer. All the different software-related roles have always confused me a little bit, especially since when I've worked with software developers in the past, they're often not even consistent in how they're referring to themselves within the one job. So based on your experience, are software programmers, developers, engineers, and architects just different names for effectively the same role? Or is there a difference between these different types of software professionals? That's a great question. And it makes me chuckle at the inconsistency that we have and that I have. And we'll probably have in the same conversation that we have here today. I would make a distinction between architect and developer, programmer, or uh, engineer was the other one that we used. So I'll go with that second group first. To me, it comes down to like how much title inflation does your company employ <laughs> kind of a thing. So like, I don't know, what, when you think of an engineer, what comes to your mind when you hear that word? I see it as, well, in the context of software, it's the person who's building the software. So I guess sort of like how a mechanical engineer would be building mechanical things. I got you. Yeah. So to... Engineering to me speaks to a lot more rigor than the typical software development shop employees. And so like uh, on the one extreme, you might have like the, the script kitty in high school who's able to write things that tear down other people's websites. And there's probably not a lot of rigor in that, just trying stuff until it works. And you could sometimes end up like that in the professional world too, especially as deadlines approach. So to me, when I hear engineer, I'm thinking of like the people who write the software that runs on the space shuttle or the run on the Mars rovers. And I, I don't, I've never worked on a Mars rover or on a space shuttle. And that's probably a good thing for the occupants of the shuttle. 
but like I just imagine that where failure has such a high cost and updates are very difficult to do. I mean, there's quite a bit of a delay between here and Mars, for example. You just approach the work very differently. And in the typical software development company, the projects, it's a mixture of things. One, the consequences of a failure generally aren't things with people inside of them exploding. For example, like you might double post a tweet or a comment on Facebook or something like, yeah, it doesn't look great, but not a big deal. And so um, I think of developer, programmer, and those two are kind of the same thing. And that's what most people are, even the ones who are titled engineers. I don't refer to myself as an engineer. It's something I aspire to be, to bring that kind of a rigor. But the words, engineer has lost its meaning in my mind in the software world because we use it to sound cool, but we don't do things that engineers do. And I'll probably come off sounding completely like an elitist gatekeeper, maybe whatever, but I don't know. That's that's how I view them. So where I've listed engineer, it's because that's what the company hiring me called me. Uh, but in casual conversation, I'll I, people ask me, what do you do for work? And I'll say, I work in software development. So, okay, that's those. So then architect, that's the other one. How's that different? In some places, like architect is just, you've become a senior programmer. And so the next step is to be architect. But I don't think that's quite right. The architect, I think that the the best architects are ones who came up through the development ranks and actually were building and shipping things. But once you start focusing on architecture, it's less about building the actual critical path production code and more about there's these 10 things our system needs to do. How do we organize that and divvy it up amongst the various teams that we have so that they can keep working mostly independently of one another and delivering so that the work can keep moving along without getting blocked and I feel like I'm getting long-winded in this answer, but I'll, I'll wrap it up with this. In a lot of places, you see a technical division of teams like, oh, this is the database team, or this is the, quote, front-end team. But all of your functionality requires the effort of all of those teams. And so you get the effects of having to wait on each other and then playing the game of telephone and getting it wrong and going back and doing rework. And to me, that says, well, your architecture is incorrect at that point. Because if the work is stalling and not getting delivered, that's a problem. Your, your customers don't care if your people are busy. Your customers care when they get new things that help them do their work better. I mean, not every app is for work, but I think you get the idea that I'm trying to get out there. And so your team structure is often one of the biggest impediments to delivering at a regular cadence. And so the architecture function then is focused on that. How do we organize the work in general so that we're not constantly waiting? And it's not just waiting, it's like quality issues, it's morale and all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, that that's, that's how I would divvy those up. So you're architecting the team and the organization. So it's a leadership role rather than actually designing the software, which is what the title always suggested to me. Oh, that's a great point. So once you start doing that, the thing that I found, so this is some, when I first became an architect, I viewed it as purely a technical thing, like I'm designing the software. And then you just, you keep butting up against the team organization until it finally clicked in my head. It's like, oh, this is also a people thing. And this has actually been a point of contention in places that I've worked is 
the architects are viewed, you're a technical person, you're doing technical things, but until you organize all of the system of work properly, you won't get to the architecture that you actually want. And so I, I believe that software architecture is a management function, although oftentimes the people tasked with it are not viewed as management. A lot of what I base this on, there's a guy, have you ever heard of Mel Conway? I think, have you show, included some of his videos in your emails? Not videos, but I've probably made reference to him before. Okay, so Mel Conway, I've never met him. He He's still alive and he writes, but he did, I think it was like in the mid 60s or 70s or something, he did a study of software architecture and he didn't name it this. It's called Conway's Law. And doing this research project, what he discovered was that, and I'm going to horribly paraphrase this, but I think it was trying to do this word for word as best I can. He said that any group of people designing a system is constrained to design it in a way that reflects their communication structure. That'll often get misquoted as their team structure or you ship your org chart. And so they were building a compiler, I think, in the research project. And what he found out was that if you had four teams effectively in your communication structure, you would get a four-pass compiler. And if you had three teams, you'd get a three-pass compiler. And so when I've been hired as an architect, it was, hey, we're not shipping as fast as we would like to. We know you have this technical expertise with microservices. Can you please come here and fix our architecture? And in the first time that I did that, I thought I was going in to do a technical job. And then you find out it's like, oh, we are constrained to have the architecture that mirrors our communication structure. So we cannot change our architecture successfully until we change our communication structure. And it's not like a law in the same sense that gravity is. We don't have mathematical proofs of this. It's an observation that really holds in observation, which is not the same as science. Like We can't test it in the same way that we can other things with the scientific method. But whatever my anecdotes are worth, and Mill Conway's anecdotes and lots of other people, it's a, a pattern that you repeat. So yes, if you're going to do architecture, you're going to change the architecture, you have to change the way that the organization operates. Otherwise, people revert exactly back to what's familiar and how they're currently graded on their job performance. So yeah, so architecture is really skirting that line between what is management and what is building. So it, it like it combines both elements, I think. I'd never thought about that before. So yeah, I actually think data scientists could benefit from having the equivalent of an architect in their teams. Why do you suppose that is? Like just hypothesizing the things that come to my mind, is there like a, a fear thing that it's so new we've all got to prove ourselves? Are there just not industry standard practices of how data science coordinate with one another? Or why do you why do you think that is? I think I'd say the latter is more likely to be the case because that's the thing. It's I know when I did my I did a master's in computer science and one of the courses you could take, I didn't take it, was software development process. So the fact that there was a course called soft, the software development process suggests there is an industry standard for that. There was no equivalent the data science development process. A lot of training in data science, I think, tends to focus on, and here's this lot of techniques that you can use, and here's this lot of techniques that you can use, rather than 
how do we coordinate all this into producing some sort of output? Okay. Huh. I did part of a master's degree in computer science. I didn't finish it, but my exposure to the academic world, like it's like there was collaboration, but at the same time there wasn't because everybody had to complete their thing individually. And so like not trying to say it's a like a like evil intent or something or charlatan. No, it's none of that. It's just I wonder if data science feels more like doing like a, a thesis or a dissertation versus like getting together with a band and jamming together or something. Yeah, I think that's it. It feels like well, a lot of the assignments are very similar to doing, you know, maths assignments type thing. And yeah, I don't think you really have that jamming type thing with data science or I haven't encountered it. Maybe some people do. Okay. Huh. That's interesting. I see elements of that attitude in software development as well. I think what I would call a team actually working together might look a bit differently than what a lot of people in my industry would. Because when I observe most teams, I just see a bunch of people who talk once a day going on and there's like this allergy to co-creating things like that uh, techniques like pair programming for example where two people are working on the exact same thing at the same time one keyboard between them taking turns typing or mob programming which is that but with three or more people and like that's very i don't know i haven't quizzed the entire industry let's say but anecdotally again my reaction for bringing these techniques up around people ranges from like oh that's interesting but i've never tried it to you're insane. Like I literally got called insane once for suggesting that three people work together on the same code. But why would you use three people to do the work of one? Well, it turns out it's not the work of one, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think that's how programming started out either. I think it was also viewed as a, no, but I don't know. Like I've seen pictures from like when Grace Hopper was doing stuff, there's pictures of her surrounded by other people working together. And it's like, that's mobbing. That's, that's what it looks like. I don't know at what point it became so individual. It's, it's interesting because I've had experiences like that where I've been working with other people to get a board paper out, for example, and these are not programming experiences, but you know, where we've had an hour to get the board paper out, we can't do it back and forth. So one of us will be sitting at the keyboard typing and everyone will just be shouting at that person and you end up with something really amazing at the end of that hour and it's way better than whatever board paper you could have produced in a week had you done the back and forth so i think if you did something like that with programming that would be really amazing oh it's a joy like it's tiring i'm an introvert and so i take susan kane's definition of that that means that it's not that i'm shy and not that I necessarily have poor social skills. If I have them, it's not because I'm an introvert. It's just that I don't recharge from being in groups of people. And so when I have a good day of pair programming, of mob programming, it's like the team bonding is just incredible. The work product is incredible. There's a lot of steps that I would have to do if I were working by myself that I don't have to do in a mob context, like the peer review process, because it was happening, happening continuously as we were writing the code. What purpose is there to another after the fact inspection but i come home it's like a good workout at the gym it's like i know this is good for me and i enjoy it and in some sense i feel really good but i'm tired right now now i need to go isolate for a while to recover but you know the the it is a joyful experience to like actually co-create now it can go very poorly like one of the anti-patterns for it is uh, when one person's just like i stream on twitch sometimes 
And when I stream on Twitch, I talk as I'm coding. If mob programming were sitting in a room with me for four hours watching me do that, that would be excruciating. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. But in these modes of work, we take turns being the person at the board. And that person's just taking notes from what the other people are saying. And when that lands, like, it's just, I really like it. And I can imagine the worst case scenario, which is, have you ever had one of those work experiences where the powers that be in an organization take everyone away to an offsite, put them in groups of people who don't know each other, and then say, you've got an hour to come up with some brilliant idea that we can use in the corporate plan or something like that. And that's just painful. It is. Yeah, it takes time. The team needs some time to gel and doing the work together can help with that. But that sounds like a much higher pressure situation than the typical, we need to do this work item on our project. Are they like high pressure situations? Like you better have something after an hour? They usually are at the time. You know, one one person from this group will have to present. But at the end of it, you know, the quality of ideas that are generated on the spot in an hour with no prior knowledge of the topic, you tend to end up with very poor quality outputs. You know, every group does. And you're like, I don't think any of these are actually usable. And then they sort of end up in a draw. So I think you have to know the people in the group if you're going to do some sort of group development situation and understand what the background on the subject. So possibly it might help if you started off doing some work as individuals and then grouped together once you've developed an understanding of the project in your own right. And then that's when you could get it. I guess it's like with musicians. I mean, you wouldn't have the members of a band learning how to play their instruments in a group. They'd learn them and then they'd group together to jam. Yeah, that would be tricky to do that. I would I would agree that there has to be some level of familiarity with the craft to do that in a software sense. But I've had some friends who were competent developers, but not familiar with the tech they were using at a new job, for example. But in working in an ensemble setup like that, they said, wow, I got up to speed with this so much faster than I ever had. And so that probably wouldn't have gone as well if they were had no programming experience. But I've tried this with my kids, actually. Um, uh, two of my daughters were interested in programming. And so like they would, we would talk about what is the problem that we're trying to solve. And I would let them do the talking and I do the typing because I knew the syntax in this particular time that I'm thinking of. But I just prompt them with questions like, well, here's this big thing we want to do. How do we break that into something smaller and keep doing that until we could put it in lines of code? And they were able to meaningfully participate in what we were trying to build together because they're capable of thinking and breaking it down. They just don't know how to render it into the syntax. Did that help them learn the syntax? I don't know, but it was a good bonding experience. So now I think you're right. You probably do have to have some minimum level for that to be a, a positive thing, but certainly for like acclimating to the norms of a new company or a new team, I find that's very hard to do solo because that type of stuff tends to not be documented. I don't even know that that's a good use of time to document things like, oh, this is how we indent our code or this is how we do X. And that sometimes that's better left to people just communicating with one another. I think that kind of thing would be very hard to learn. So, although, but the actual craft of programming, you can definitely level up. And I mean, I did. I mean, 
not just because I did something that means it's the right way to do it, but I did manage to learn how to get computers to do things by myself. So yeah, that would be strange. Like four people show up who've never played any instrument. Each one picks one up. All right, let's do this. Well, I heard the Ramones taught themselves how to play their own instruments. So did they? Who knows? Yeah, apparently. Yeah, that's why if you hear a lot of their songs, you know, a lot of them are very simple musically, but yeah. That's fantastic. Good for them. Have you ever actually had any experiences working with data scientists or data analysts in any of your jobs? A little bit, yeah. My last position, we had a data science team and uh, the interaction with them was mostly they were, I forget who coined it, but there's like five or seven phases in this model of like something going from idea to being a product and the various steps along the way. I don't know if any of that is ringing a bell for you. Is this the crisp DM process? So business understanding, data understanding, data preparation, modeling, evaluation, deployment. That could very well be. That sounds vaguely familiar. They were still in the towards the research side of all that, figuring out what they were going to do. And so my involvement was to just become aware of it because the plan was they would develop models that would then be incorporated back into the product so the customers could exercise them. And so it's just like, hey, need you folks to understand what the constraints of working with our system will be when you're ready to make it a product. And that was it. That's as far as we got. Um, we never... By the time that I had left there, we didn't get it integrated back into the main product. Did you see any possible issues that could have arisen or any strengths that were coming out of what you observed of this team? It was super impressive to me. I, from just exercising the tooling that they had, they found some, this is going to sound like I'm making this up, but because I don't remember the particulars, I just remember that taking the data and exercising it, they found some insights that were useful to the business and they published them on LinkedIn and some other people said, oh, wow, that sounds interesting and useful. It was venture capital related data. And so just noticing patterns of the, like the types of business structures people do and how money was flowing, particularly with what's happened in the recent six months. I think that research was very interesting and so that was cool, like that ability to bind these insights from the data. I was really impressed with that. Uh, the dangers that I saw of it was like, gosh, I, I don't know if they're going to listen to this, but it it felt very like cowboy work to me in a sense. That's like, there wasn't a lot of, I wasn't seeing it anyway. It doesn't mean it wasn't there just because I don't see something doesn't mean it wasn't there of oh, when we turn this into a product, we need to integrate this with the rest of the system. Kind of a, I don't know. And that could just be like failings in my own character. But that's, I didn't find the same warmth towards playing with the rest of the system as we were trying to give. Like, hey, we want to support you in what you're doing. Let's work together. How do we figure this out? Because you know a bunch that we don't. We need it. It's going to be great. But we need our customers to be able to leverage it as well. So I don't know. That's... No, it's a, it's a fair observation because that's something that I think a lot of data scientists, they're trained in how to find those insights. So they are very good at it. And when I've spoken to other non-data science guests or 
just people I know. The thing that they often identify as the greatest strength of the data science team is the ability to find insights. But I would say, based on my experiences as a data scientist and what I know of how data scientists are trained, there isn't a lot of training in how do you take that and integrate it back into a system. So I don't think it's so much people deliberately trying to be cowboys. I think it's that they haven't received that training in, okay, so what's next? I love that observation that you make there because that's one of my core beliefs too. It's like whenever you're seeing something not going the way that you want it, especially in a business setting like that, is like, don't look to the people, look to the system. What is the system incentivizing? What has the system provided? And the real fix to that is not be like, software developer, you have unreasonable expectations or data scientist, you're a diva. It's why is this not flowing correctly in the first place? Let's fix the system and then we'll get it there. Data science is a very new discipline. So there wouldn't be hundreds of blog posts about how to incorporate this. And to point the finger right back at myself, I think everything I just said there is what like every business person says about their software development teams. Like we can't understand anything you're doing. So how do we talk to each other? So how do we fix the situation? So if you encounter that situation again and you're in a position where you could do something about it, how would you work with that data science team to help them integrate their findings back into the system? Yeah, this gets into like in the bio part that you read about me talking about lean and DevOps principles. DevOps, how do I make this not like a 15-minute long-winded answer? Um, is a, a portmanteau of development and operations. And so the software development and running it on the servers was typically organized as two completely different teams, different reporting structures up to the VP level. And so software development, and I'm taking a lot of this from the DevOps handbook, fantastic book. What am I trying to say, right? So development's job was to deliver new functionality, change things. Operations job was to keep it running. They want stability. And there's a core chronic conflict, as they say in the book, like those two goals cannot be reconciled so long as they are separate teams with separate reporting structures. And so what the DevOps movement inspired by things like Lean came to realize was like, why are these separate teams? Isn't the goal delivering value to the customer? What if you merged them? And so people who were operations are now part of the same team, same manager, same reporting structure. And so like at this last job that I'm talking about, data science was a separate department. We had a VP of engineering that my line of reporting went up through. Data science went up through our VP of data science. And those being separate, not quite departments, but separate lines in the org chart, that creates a conflict again. And I just always like, how do we align around the customer value we're trying to deliver? Who cares what the specific tools are to get. I mean, we need to make sure that a team is composed of everyone we need to deliver it. And like in my radical thinking on this, I'm like, why is customer support a separate division? Aren't we all part of the same product team trying to deliver an experience? So that's where I'd start looking first. I actually think that would work very well because one of the jobs I had early in my career when I was, so I started off working in insurance and I did a job in insurance pricing and I was in the premium pricing team and it was part of the broader premium division. So you had in this one division, 
the people who were doing the pricing, which were the programmers, statisticians, things like that, and they were in the same broad division as the people who are doing the legislation behind the premiums, the people who were actually putting things in, deploying things into production, the people who were auditing premiums, you know, every single premium related function was in this one division. And it was really great because you had this, you know, everyone who was doing, trying to achieve the same goal was in that one area under the one director. Yeah, no, that's super interesting because like in the kind of work that we do, and I'll include us both in the same thing, we're probably working on something where the solution is not known yet. Yes. We don't know exactly what it is yet, which is very distinct from manufacturing. Like you do manufacturing well when things don't change and you're just pumping out the same thing. If you and I do work, that's just what's already been done before. We're not adding any value. We're just consuming dollars at that point because by definition, we're trying to figure out the unknown. And so anything we can do to structure the work to get more test observation, refine, test observation, refine, that's where the power comes in. And so if we're trying to achieve objective X, but we organize our teams such that we have to hop teams to do one of these iterations, we're really slow in getting more data and discovering new knowledge and deploying it in our customers' objectives. And so I, I think that's what it comes down to, like how good is our feedback loop and if we've got the wrong team slash system architecture, wrong is such a loaded word. What am I trying to say? If we're not optimizing for that learning path, I think that hurts us a lot in knowledge work. Yeah. And also, I mean, what you're saying about having all the teams that aren't all working towards a common purpose, you can also have issues with if team one has this task as being its number one priority and team two has the ta that task is its number 10 priority, you're going to end up with bottlenecks at some point. Big time, big time. And then everybody gets frustrated. And another thing that I could go off for hours and hours about is like that creates the conditions where then you need people to act heroically to get anything done. It, Lean has its seven wastes that it talks about. Things like motion is waste in manufacturing because that's time that's not going towards delivering value to the company. A husband and wife author pair, Tom and Mary Poppendick, they wrote a book where they said, hey, let's take these ideas of lean waste and apply them to software development. And then the authors of the DevOps handbook adding a, added a couple more to that. And one of them is heroics. When you have all these competing priorities, who finally is the arbiter of what we're going to do first as a company? The proper deciding factor of that is the first person who is a common manager to these different groups. Like that's the role. That's what they're supposed to do is arbitrate things like that if they're not already providing the proactive leadership. But unfortunately, you get a lot of situations where management abdicates that responsibility. And I'll use management and leadership somewhat interchangeably here. I think that management gets a bad rap. People look down on it and we want leaders. Like, well, well do we? Wouldn't we rather have systems of work where we didn't have the problems that required leaders in the first place? And if we structure the separate teams and give them competing priorities, it's hard to not end up in that situation. It would take very deliberate effort. And so then I'm thinking too, like the, what data scientists do, thinking back to my experience at the last job, like not being familiar with the tooling, not being familiar with the objectives, we're on the same team. Like 
I think that too would create a lot of empathy between us. Like, first of all, like I'd start to understand their craft a lot better. Like, I would never be able to do it to the same level without years of study like they have. But I would start to understand it and the challenges that they face and vice versa, they'd get the same thing. And so now if they're like, you know what, we need to focus on data science because now we have that bond. It's like, oh, cool. I'm on board with that. How can I help? Versus like those darn data scientists. The reason why I really love working with software developers now is because I had two experiences. So when I did my master's of computer science, the majority of my fellow students were software developers or software engineers before they'd done that master's. And so when I was in all the class discussion forums, I was constantly seeing all these posts written by software developers and they'd be saying, no, this is how you do it in software developer world. And that really made me understand things from the point of view of the software developers, because my background was in statistics. So I was looking at it from a very different way. And that's when I first started to really appreciate the value that software developers could bring. But then in a previous job I had, I started off in the data science team and there was very much this conflict between the data scientists and the software developers. Each team seemed to have this attitude that the other team was doing something annoying that was stopping them from achieving their goal. And then I ended up spending, I don't know, about six, six to nine months in one of the software development teams as part of you know, a particular project I was working on. And I started attending all these soft meetings of this software developer team. And suddenly I was hearing their point of view on what was happening. And I realized they weren't deliberately trying to be obstructionist. They were actually trying their best to do what the data science team wanted. It's just that they didn't understand what that was. And what was interpreted by the data science team as the software developers being annoying, the software developers in their meetings were saying, we're trying to do what they want. They just won't tell us. They just can't articulate to us in the language we need what that is. And it just felt you needed some sort of bridge between those two teams that could communicate that. And so I think if you had them more opportunities for software developers to go and sit in a data science team and data scientists go and sit in a software development team. I think there'd be fewer conflicts and more, all right, we're all trying to achieve the same goal. It's just, we're not necessarily all speaking the same language. Yeah. I think there's a lot to that because even with design and software development, you can get the same kind of conflicts going on why can't the developers just render the designs the way that I'm drawing them? Or then on the software side, it's like, why doesn't the designer understand how difficult it is to do the thing they're asking for? Could we not just talk about this? And the best ways that I've seen to solve that is let's quit being separate teams, right? We're working on the same goal. Let's sit together. Like we'll sit down if we're remote or remote, fine. We'll get on a zoom call, discord, whatever. And I'll put my screen up as the developer and the designer can say, okay, that thing is off by a little bit. Can you make this change? Sure, quick, I'll do it. And then we can see it in real time and respond to that. I wonder, I'm inclined to say yes. My biases tell me yes, that would also help with data science for the same reasons because fostering that team spirit, the shared purpose, getting to know one another, getting to understand the challenges of each other's thing. And then have you heard the notion of the T-shaped expertise? 
Yeah, yeah, I've heard about that. Okay. Yeah. So like if a designer works long enough with developers, I truly believe that any designer could pick up how to code in HTML and CSS, even pick up some JavaScript. I worked with a designer who did that. It was the most fantastic experience I've ever had interacting with the design team. And then if developers spend enough time around designers and observing what they're doing and the reasons for it, and if we can have that conversation, here's why I'm doing this, I think designers could pick up way better. I'm sorry, developers could pick up way better design skills and intuit things better, understand like, oh yeah, this is harder for me to do what you're asking, but what a better result it will deliver for the customer. I think that kind of interaction really would benefit any people with different skills who are trying to achieve the same end. And it might even help people who think they aren't trying to achieve the same end realize that they are. It sounds very kumbaya, but like I don't know. Like I don't know how to get people to feel like they're on the same team if they're not working together. And I don't think that a daily meeting or an every six month design review or a once a week meeting constitutes working together. Like if we're not in work literally together and that's where like people will call me crazy because like uh what's a designer going to do while developers are sitting around coding like i don't know but again i'm not interested in maximum utilization of people i'm interested in work progressing and i think people get a lot more satisfaction from completing things than they do from just producing a bunch of half completed work and i think there are skills that yeah, I'm not saying data scientists should go and do software development work, but I think if a data scientist spent a little bit of time on a software development team just to understand it, when I was working in that team, when they had you know too much work to do, I'd often say, look, I can program in Python, you're Python programmers. If you've got a task that you need done because you've got too much on your plate, just send it my way and I'll give it a go. I'm not going to be the best programmer, but you know, I can do something. And that was how I learned about test-driven development because that was the framework that was being used there. And that taught me stuff, which I then was able to take over into my data science work. Yeah. Test-driven development is actually something that you mention in your emails. And I'd actually like to discuss that a bit with you now. Yeah, no, I think it's a great practice. Not everyone does, but how would I describe it? I guess it, it is a development activity. The word test in there is joined with a hyphen to driven. So test driven is a modifier on the word development. It's a way to do development. And I might even go so far as to say it's a design exercise, not like visual UI design, but design of the software design exercise. Because keeping with that theme of fast feedback cycles is how do I know if I have developed code that is usable if no one's trying to use it. I've got no idea. A test suite is something that's trying to use my code. And so if my code is not testable, there's a really good chance it's also not usable. And that if someone were trying to use my module to build their thing, they would hate it. So that's one of the big benefits I see to it. And then the other one is like the, the actual cycle of it is I write a failing test. And then I write code that makes the test pass. And then I can 
make sure that all of my tests pass that I have up to this point. And then I can refactor the code. So um, not assuming that everybody knows what refactoring means, but it's where I make changes to the code that don't change its functionality, but make it more maintainable and easier to work with, that kind of a thing. But unspoken in that is a practice that a friend of mine, he actually presented at our meetup on this when he did TDD. And he said, don't just code and then run the tests. Code, pause, anticipate in your mind what the result of running the test will be, and then run the test. That changed my world. Like I was all for test-driven development, but that added step of stop, think what you think is going to happen it's not good enough for stuff to work if I don't understand why it was working. Like if I was expecting a failure and it passed, not good enough. I'm not done. I'm going to go back in and I'm going to break the code until I understand why it's running the way that it is. I think that discipline, I think that could be a great thing in data science. I think that's a good idea because when I'm writing tests, the two things I'm always scared about are what happens if I don't have full coverage? And what happens if I've written tests that are too simple and therefore they're not covering the harder scenarios? If you do that pause and think, then you could say, okay, are my tests complex enough to actually allow for all the possible scenarios? Or am I deliberately writing tests that are super trivial so that I'll just tick the box that says pass, and then I can go on to the next task. Yeah, that's a fun one. Coverage, um, there's a lot of schools of thought on this, and some people are like, we need 100% test coverage. But you can write tests that cover 100% of the code that don't actually test anything. There are code coverage tools that you can plug in to your Ruby or JavaScript code. I'm sure every language has this. And it will give you a report at the end of the test suite, which lines were actually exercised by the test, which ones weren't. But you could then just not put any assertions in your test. And so, yep, every line was touched, but we didn't actually validate that anything worked the way that we wanted to. So I don't know, like I'm not a 100% coverage person. I am certainly not a 0% coverage person. TDD though, it isn't testing. So I would never say because I have a, a test suite that came from TDD that I have satisfied the testing requirement of some piece of software. It's a development tool. It happens to give me rerunnable tests, which has some really nice features to it. But the discipline of testing is different from the discipline of test-driven development. Any of that said, that's another thing where I think that working in pairs or in mobs is very helpful because someone's checking my blind spots. I could write a test and someone's like, wait, Ethan, what is this actually testing? That That's a trivial test. What value is there from that? And then I can have that moment of like, oh, that's a really good point. We try to do that in software with after the fact reviews, but I've just never seen those be thorough. There's always the fear that like, oh, someone's going to accuse me of nitpicking or whatever. But then also after the fact, I have no insight to what your thought process is as you're writing it. And so Suppose I see something that needs correction. I don't even know what you were thinking. So now we've got to get together anyway to talk through what you were thinking. And same thing when you're reviewing my code. So I just think that like, I, I wouldn't worry too much about the coverage, what these tools would report and what your test coverage is. But as for what's too simple, that's where the peer review is so important. And I think that's best done in real time. I do think it's something that I, I know it's something that can make your code a lot more robust because I think 
a lot of data scientists aren't in the discipline of doing it. And then they discover the issues with their code once it's reached the deployment stage. And then they've got a model in production and someone phones up and says, hey, do you know your model's doing this weird thing and rejecting everything? <laughs> when if you'd actually done that test prior to deployment, then you wouldn't have to get that phone call. Yeah, I could see that. Like the the purpose, what was it? someone said that, who was it? Was it Dijkstra? I think had the quotation that like, uh, computer science is as much about computers as astronomy is about telescopes kind of a thing. And so like data science probably is rendered in computer programs. That's the crude material that you have to work with to realize a data science goal. So that programming aspect of it isn't the data science, but it can sure stop the data science from providing value to people if not done well. I think a lot of data scientists would benefit from learning to strengthen their programming. And well, everyone would benefit from strengthening all the different elements that make up their career, I think. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. What do you, with finite time, what do you pick and choose? And that's why I always come back to the team. The team can do that, like put the people together. I have yet to work at a job where if I make a mistake, someone's going to die because of it. So a lot of examples I'll use, people will say like, oh, well, we don't have that big of a consequence. It's not that big of a deal if we fail. Sure, totally grant that. But I do think it's very useful to look at how teams organize when lives are on the line. Take the special forces unit, for example. Like everyone has basic soldiering skills, but you have someone who's really deep in medicine to deal with wounds. You've got people very well-versed in demolitions and so on and so forth. And why do they organize that way? It's for that real-time feedback loop so that we can respond to new information and exploit new information very quickly. And so if I got a data science task and started running away with it by myself, I would come back with something that would probably look like an abomination to someone like you who actually knows what they're doing. But if we work together, you could correct in real time. And then as far as wiring it up to the software that could drive it and make that a product, we can fix that in real time. And I think you're absolutely right. Like it has to function as software to be used. That's until we develop some other interface for these models. But, and I love the way you phrased it, not getting that call. Nobody wants that call. Oh yeah. Like we want to sleep at night, not debug production servers. I've done several jobs in government. The other thing we always say is when you're in government, you want to avoid ending up on the front page of the newspaper. Probably no one's going to die unless you're working in a military type discipline, but you don't want to make a mistake so big that the newspaper decides to say, hey, look at this stuff up that government organization made. Yeah, that's rough. The US's FAA went through one of those a few months ago with some software error that like ground all air travel in the country for a day or two. Oh yeah, we heard about that in Australia. Okay. Interconnected systems, flight delays in the US are gonna affect everywhere because people coming to the US, people trying to get away from it. Sorry, I don't mean it in that sense. People who have a flight scheduled to leave the US. One delay causes another that causes 10 others. And then the whole world is at an awful, not a good time to be going by plane. Is what I'm saying. 
And from what I can gather, it was just some really dumb little error that caused it. Was that right? Yeah, as I recall, it was something to do with some file. It comes configuration file. And I remember being upset at the headlines because they're like, FAA traces it back to actions that this one employee took. It's like, okay, sure, that person typed the keys. Why system where someone could type the keys and ground airplanes across the world? Like that's a management and systems failure, not this poor person getting blamed for it. When you're dealing with software development or with data science, it's often the case that you've got senior management who doesn't understand the technical disciplines and they're relying on people in a software development team or a data science team to take responsibility for whatever they're producing. When for appropriate risk management, the people in senior management should at least have enough of an understanding of what the technical teams are doing, even if they can't program or fit models, so that they can ask the right questions to make sure that you're not going to get problems like that. 100% in agreement with you. It's not to excuse we techies from doing our bit to outreach and facilitate that transfer of understanding. But yeah, if you are going to manage a technical organization, you're going to have to bone up on your technical skills. Like you don't have to code, but I don't know. I could, pure speculation, but I'm saying like, if you're a VP director level person, you should be able to pop into a mob session and make a meaningful contribution. You may not type the code, but you'd be right there to answer a question if one pops up. You might be able to make a clarification, like hearing your team talk about what they're doing. You're like, oh, wow, they totally misunderstood what we were trying to do. I'm right here to correct it. That's great. I had this fantastic boss early in my career and I was programming in SAS and I had a boss, he couldn't program, but he had learned to understand SAS code. So he couldn't write it from scratch, but if I showed him a piece of code, I could talk him through it and he could understand, you know, he understood things like if then statements, all the mathematical type calculations, for loops, things like that. And I thought that was really great because even though he couldn't write the code from scratch, he could understand the logic behind it so that he could understand what it was doing. I love that. That fits with a lot of my understanding of Lean 2. I, I don't know if this was true or not or apocryphal, but supposedly when Toyota gets a new frontline manager, they'll take that person down to the production floor and draw a chalk circle on the ground and be like, this is your office. Like you need to be here observing the work being done, not up there, not observing the work being done. With this guy, he was, as I said, he was probably one of the best bosses I've had in my life, who'd been in that organization for over 20 years when I started. So he had, I think he'd started when he just graduated from university. And well, if he'd been there for over 20 years, he would have been in his early 40s. So he knew everything about that organization from actually living through different jobs at different levels. That's awesome. In tech, they say you do your career a disservice when you stay at a place for a long time. But when you do stay at a place for a long time, there's just so much knowledge you have, the implicit knowledge of the organization and the reasons why things were done. And I don't care how good your documentation game is. Like you, you can't capture all of that in documentation. You've got to be there to see it happening. 
I've been at organisations where, for various reasons, they've had a high turnover rate in the organisation or in a team. And even though people have to document things on their way out, you lose so much knowledge when those situations happen. Yeah. That we When we talk about retention costs, we're always like, oh, the cost of hiring a new employee. Yes, it's high, especially if you're working through recruiters, but I don't think we even attempt to do the accounting on how much is lost from the knowledge. And when people leave an organization, I mean, I'm not saying people deliberately try and leave things out of their handover notes to sabotage the organization, because I don't think people do that. But I know when I've done documentation in the past, I'll do the documentation and then two weeks later think to myself, oh, hell, I should have included whatever it was in it. And it wasn't that I was trying to sabotage anyone. It was just at that time, I didn't think of this. And then it occurred to me when I was taking a shower at a later point in time. I forget the context, but someone was saying once that like, as you develop expertise in something, you don't even realize what are the things you just take for granted anymore. And I think that plays into when you're trying to document, oh, what's the most important stuff that I could leave for the company now that I'm departing? If if you're growing in your knowledge and at the frontier of your knowledge, you're like, oh, that's the stuff that's really important that I need to work on. But not, this stuff is just all taken for granted now. Sorry, for those who can't see, I'm using my hands in amazing gestures to represent a body of knowledge. So you forget what the stuff is that you're actually doing because it's just innate. It's instinct now. But someone who's going to take your place probably needs that stuff more than the stuff at the frontier of your knowledge because that's the basics of just how to do anything in your role. Whenever I've started at a new organization, the hardest thing I find is figuring out how to connect my code to the database or data warehouse. Because being able to program in a particular language, that's a transferable skill between organizations. Understanding the actual specific systems for an organization, that is unique to an organization. And once you've been there, that's, well, doesn't everyone know how to access the data warehouse? No, no, they don't. And no one documents it. I, I think an analog of that to the pure software development world would be how do I deploy my code? And every organization does it slightly differently. Teams within the same organization do it differently. That's something I really appreciate about where I am right now is that we don't rely on any one person to be the deployment person or to be the database person. We all rotate around working with each other and everyone is expected to deploy. I did in my first week, I was talked through how to execute the deployment script. I need to go back and do it slower to understand what each step represents better. But I pushed code to production in that week. So like, if everyone on the team disappeared overnight, I could probably get a deployment out the next day. And that's cool. I want to learn it deeper. <laughs> that redundancy, I think, is a good thing. I think you need to train people early on. And I think it's good that you're getting that training. For sure. Absolutely. I'm grateful for it. Is there anything on your radar in the AI data and analytics space that you think is going to become important in the next three to five years? Oh, that's a tough question because my mind immediately goes to specific technologies. But I think like from what I've been exposed to with like seemingly magic things like chat GPT and LLM, some other flavors and all that kind of stuff, generative AI. The real challenge is how do we use it properly? And what I mean by that is like, 
GitHub has GitHub Copilot, or you can ask chat GPT coding questions and it will generate a first pass of things for you. How do we leverage that while still, while not abdicating what a human should do? And what do I mean by that? It's like, I don't want to just take chat GPT snippets and just paste them without understanding them. But at the same time, using chat GPT has saved me probably hours in getting that initial understanding of something. And so far more, like even as far as like non-AI technologies, what I'm excited for the future of software development, what I think will make the, the critical advantage is like, how do we build better systems of work? So more so than the specific technologies is how do we incorporate these technologies into our workflows such that they are helpful like there's the obvious like we don't want to get into legal trouble for plagiarism or using data that we shouldn't have in the training but i work at a law firm right now and so that's a big question like can generative ai make contracts do we even want it to but certainly could it could help us so figuring out what are the workflows how do we take these technologies make them not novelties make them not landmines but actual things that increase the capacity of people like the iron man suit like iron man wasn't a robot it was a suit that made tony stark better at what he does how do we make the technology function like that that's i don't have any specific things that was a lot of answers or a lot of words to say i don't know no i think that's good because i've experimented with using ChatGPT for my own programming work and i find it gets things wrong so often that I would be cautious using it if it was something I didn't know how to do myself already, because you need to be have the sufficient knowledge to be able to spot when Chef GPT is getting something wrong. Yeah, that's like going back to the TDD discussion, taking that deliberate step of predicting that would what would what will happen when I run the test. To me, it's the same thing. It's like, I have to be in control of the system and understand what it's doing. And if I'm just pasting snippets of code from ChatGPT, I am letting go of that understanding of how things are working. And so where it's been helpful is replacing that initial Googling. Now I can ask a question of it and it'll produce a snippet of code with some minor explanations. And to me, it's like, cool. Now I know what I need to Google to actually go learn and understand this. I've found when I've done something, if it's something I'm not familiar with, it is interesting to look at, okay, ChatGPT, how would you do this to see if there is a better way of doing it? And sometimes I can see improvements, but sometimes I look at it and it's like, no, I think I did it better the first time. Oh, that's awesome. I I love some of the things it produces, like this pure entertainment. And if you read some of the things people have tricked it into doing and yeah, they're they're fun. I asked it a question once where I, was, I wanted it to take a strong stance on something, some trivial thing like what video game is best. And it's like, as a language model, I cannot do that, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, huh, what's the definition of a wet blanket? And then it gave me the exact definition of that term. And I said, well said, ChatGPT, well said. Because <laughs> it just, it wouldn't take the stance. And I don't know, it was a wet blanket to me. I've tried the whole, which is the best James Bond type question. And no, I cannot weigh in on this. This is a matter of personal opinion. Yeah, but don't you reckon that Sean Connery is better than Roger Moore and that sort of thing? No, <laughs> no, that is a matter of personal opinion. You're no fun, ChatGPT. Yes. Oh, that's fun. What final advice would you give to data scientists looking to create business value from data? 
I would give the same advice that I would give to a software developer learning how to drive more business value from the technology. When you're young, you need to learn the tools. But as you get older, I think you'll find that you'll make yourself a lot more valuable to your org by learning more about your business and what it does and what helps it succeed than in learning yet another programming language or yet another LLM or some other tool like that. What is your programming language of choice, by the way? I use Ruby most of the time these days. That's interesting. Is that a web development language mostly? I would say it's probably used for that mostly. Like the big thing in Ruby is Ruby on Rails. And so big that there are some people who don't realize that Ruby is something separate from Ruby on Rails. That's just the library oh. written in it. Um, okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's a programming language and it existed for a good 12 years before Rails was invented, maybe 10 or so. It's just a general purpose programming language written by a Japanese guy named Mats, and he wanted to write a language that was pleasant to use. And I think he nailed it. Ruby was like the darling of all startups from like 2007 to 2013. And now there's the perception it's dead. No one uses it. Well, it's like, have you heard of GitHub? Have you heard of Shopify? Have you heard of Basecamp? Like all these companies using it. It's the way developers are with languages, but it's not the fastest executing. So if you've got to do like real-time stock trading, I would say don't use Ruby for that. But I find it very pleasant to work in. I know it doesn't have very much support for machine learning. So I think that's why a lot of data scientists don't use it. But I've heard a lot of very nice things about it. Yeah, I, I agree with your assessment there. Python, at least in the early days, got NumPy and SciPy. And those are just phenomenal libraries and then the things built on top of them. And it got momentum going and just kept going. Ruby has RubyFan that a friend of mine make. of some Ruby bindings for fast artificial neural network, but that's older tech, I would say. So, yeah. I read somewhere that if NumPy had been written in Ruby instead of Python, then Ruby would have been the dominant language for data science today. I bet. And that I think is one of the, the critical things to understand software development. Like, Languages come and languages go, but people are drawn to the tools of the language. Kind of like video game consoles, like nobody wanted an Xbox. People wanted to play Halo. They could only do that with an Xbox, hence they got an Xbox. And so I agree with you on that. Of course, you wouldn't have had the cool numpy, how I like to call numpy. I don't see how that would have worked as well with Ruby. So it would have been numpy. What was that? Numbie. Yeah. 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 <laughs> hey, that has a ring to it as well. So how do we fix this problem and then make Ruby the predominant thing for data science? For listeners who want to learn more about you or get in contact, what can they do? Probably go talk to their therapist. No, just kidding. But no, if you want to find me, I run a website, practicalmicroservices.com, where I write about a lot of the things we've talked about here today. And I'm also on Twitter or X, I guess it's called now. I don't know what's going on with that. That's right. They've changed the name, haven't they? I've only seen the logo, but like, is the company called something different now? I don't know. Whatever. I tweet from time to time there. Just at my first and last name, Ethan Garfolo, and then twitch.tv slash Ethan Garfolo. See me from time to time there. And I'll also encourage people to sign up for your daily email list because I've learned a lot from reading 
your daily emails. And I think a lot of data scientists also could. I appreciate that endorsement. As I've learned a lot from yours, that was one of the themes of our conversation here today, just like these separate worlds. And I think you've got an advantage because you've worked with software development teams. It sounds a lot closer than I have with data science teams, but it's powerful tooling and I would do well to learn more about it. Thank you very much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And for those in the audience, thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and this has been Value Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting.